It's a kind of tendency to states of poignancy and sorrow and longing. It's an intense awareness of the way in which joy and sorrow are forever paired. It's an intense awareness of the way in which everyone and everything we love most will not be here forever. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Susan Cain talks about the value of longing and sorrow. I find it so mystifying to live in a culture that's so insistent only on smiles, only on upbeat, only on optimism. If we think more positively about being an introvert today than we did 10 years ago, Susan Kane is the reason why. Her 2012 book, Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking, made the case that our culture gets introverts all wrong and often undervalues them. In 2016, she followed up with the book, Quiet Power, The Secret Strengths of Introverts. Now, she's investigating another underappreciated aspect of the human experience. Her latest book is titled Bittersweet, How Longing and Sorrow Make Us Whole. Here she argues that a bittersweet, melancholic outlook makes emotional room for beauty, creativity, and love. And we're going to talk all about that today. Susan Kane, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you so much, Debbie. I am your fan, and it is so great to be here with you. Thank you. Thank you. Susan, I want to know if it's true that there's never been a day in your adult life that you haven't had some dark chocolate. <laughs> it's so true. And <laughs> I would even modify it to say that there's never been a day when I haven't had too much dark chocolate. So <laughs> Good for you. Now, why dark chocolate versus milk or white? I, You know, I just always really like long before I ever knew I was going to write a book called Bittersweet from the time I was a kid, my favorite chocolate was bittersweet chocolate. And now that I'm adult, I also know that it's better for you. So if I'm going to have this chocolate addiction, it might as well be the kind that's good for you. So, And I understand you're not too picky about the kind of dark chocolate. In fact, you prefer the little semi-sweet chocolate chips that you can put in yogurt. Well, I do do that. Yeah. But I mean, I like it all. I definitely notice if it's specially good chocolate. I just don't pay that much attention. It's more like the chocolate fix. Yeah. You grew up in Lawrence on Long Island, mm -hmm. the youngest of three children, and your grandfather was a rabbi who lived alone in a small apartment in Brooklyn, and you've said that was your favorite place in the world. How come? Oh my gosh, yeah. It really was my favorite place, and he was one of my favorite people in the world. I mean, the apartment itself was like the proverbial place that like, you, you step into another you step across the doorway and you're suddenly in another realm. You know, if mm. like if it were the site of a of a children's movie, it would be it would have been the the place from which the adventures began. But they were adventures of the mind. You know, it was this place where every surface was filled with stacks of books. The the walls were lined with books. His life was in books. He would spend all his time sitting on the sofa and reading and then crafting these sermons that were based on it. He just had this very like magical, gentle, loving, wise presence. And the whole, the whole place was imbued with that. And we used to go and visit, my mother and I would go and visit him there all the time. So, and I would just, you know, they, they would be talking their adult talk and I would just comb through the bookshelves and it wasn't even the books themselves. It was like some essence that I was absorbing. It was like what love looked like for me or one aspect of it. And also what ambition looked like in a way, because I wanted to grow up and be part of that world of books in which he lived and which he revered so much. Did he live in Borough Park? 
Yes, he did. He did. Yeah, uh, my yeah. grandparents lived there as well. My, oh. I come from a very Orthodox Jewish family, and my grandmother and grandfather lived there, and that's where we went to synagogue and spent oh, a lot kidding. of time. No, I'm not. Which, I'm which not. synagogue was it? I wonder if it was the same one. Actually, I don't know. Um, my father passed away many years ago, and he sort of broke away from the religion as a young adult. We ended up going to a more reform synagogue in Howard Beach, Queens, where we ended Mm -hmm. up moving after Brooklyn. So I was only about two or three years old when we lived in Brooklyn and then moved to Howard Beach, Queens. Well, I bet you your grandparents went to my grandfather's synagogue. I. I, 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 I can't imagine how they wouldn't. It. Yeah, I bet. And I, I remember, I remember going, going with my grandmother, sitting in a separate place from the men, wearing plastic shoes on Yom Kippur. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole, the yeah. whole thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so now I'll go back to okay. to my official questions. Um, Susan, I read that you went to the library every Friday and came home with a teetering stack of books. Uh, what were your favorites at that time? Oh gosh, so many different books. I, I I guess there were two genres especially that I loved. Um and one was the fantasy genre, you know, so like E. Nesbit and um Edward Eager and all those writers. But also my family went every summer. My father was a huge Anglophile and bibliophile. So we went every summer to London and we would go with this empty suitcase, which we would then Fill with books. Yeah, because there was no Amazon in those days. Um, And England just had all these great books that you couldn't get in the U.S., especially for kids. So um, there were all these boarding school stories, you know, of the kind in which Harry Potter was kind of uh, modeled. So I, I, I grew up reading all those stories. As you were growing up, I understand you spent countless afternoons writing stories. You called the area under your family's card table your workshop and curled up there producing magazines comprised of loose-leaf papers stapled together. And is it true that you sold subscriptions to your family members to the magazines? Yeah, it is true. There were two magazines. (laughs) One was called Rags and one was called Rabbit. I don't know why. Um, But yeah, yeah, I had a lot of willing buyers among the extended family. I, it's so interesting. I, I had a best friend. Her name was Debbie also. Mm-hmm. And um, we made a magazine also that we wrote and drew ourselves. And I, I, I still think that this is one of my my best names ever. Um, we called our magazine Debutante. <laughs> oh, that's so names. clever. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, neither, as, neither of us have that copy. We reconnected on Facebook years and years and years ago. But um, the, the first thing we, we tried to figure out was who had the magazine? And neither one of us did. You're reminding me that I had a friend named Michelle in fourth grade. I used to go to Michelle's house and we would sit at this little table in her room and write plays. We weren't writing them together. We were more like writing them side by side, but those are some of my happiest memories. Actually, when I was doing my research, I read that you guys would sit side by side and then read aloud to each other, read the the, the plays out loud to each other. Oh wow! I don't. First of all, I can't even imagine what this research is that you did. I'm so <laughs> impressed because, like, I don't remember that I've ever even talked about that about writing those plays with Michelle. Were you? envisioning at that point, was that when you first thought you might want to be a writer? Oh, I wanted to be a writer from the time I was like four years old. I was like in love with books from the very beginning. My siblings were much older and my whole family, they're all readers. So I was like the little kid growing up in a family of much older people where everybody's thing was books. So I grew up with that ambition. So yeah, I was writing those little stapled together stories from the time I was very, 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 very small. You've talked about how much your mother encouraged your creativity at that time in your life and have said that she never told you that you should be outside more or do more regular kids stuff or daydream less or socialize more. And you've stated that she understood that you had plenty of friends to play with, but recognized that one of your best friends was your own very own self. And I was wondering, did you prefer to play on your own or was it something that you just like to do both of? It was really both. And, you know, I, I I don't know, maybe if I had always been off on my own, maybe she wouldn't have been quite as supportive. Like she might've been more worried about it or something like that. But no, I, I, I always had a lot of friends and always loved playing with my friends. I was very devoted to my close friends. Um, 
like there's nothing like I think girlhood friendships. They're just like the best and the most yeah. fun and the most intense. So yeah, so I had all of that, but also loved to spend all this time reading and daydreaming. So, and and that aspect of life was just like very familiar to her because she had grown up with this father who was so immersed both in his community but also in this life of the mind. So I guess the you know that juxtaposition was like just natural to the way she had always lived. One thing that I was really compelled by as I was as I was doing my research was how you've written about how on both your mother's side of the family and your father's side of the family you lost most of your relatives in the Holocaust mm-hmm. and it gave you the sense as you were growing up that something like this could happen at any moment. And this motivated your subsequent research into what's referred to as inherited grief, which which I was really, really fascinated by. Can you talk a little bit about what inherited grief is and some of the research and some of the things that you discovered doing that research? Yeah, I mean, inherited grief is the idea that the grief or the trauma that occurs to generation A can be inherited by the descendants of generation A and you know and it can be inherited in generations B C D E F and, and and all the way down. I think people have always had a sense that that might be true but would assume that that would have happened primarily or solely through family traditions, cultural traditions, whatever. But what's really fascinating is this whole new line of research that started actually with Holocaust survivors, but has has since branched out beyond that, um, that has found that there, there seem to be epigenetic changes that occur when a profound life event happens that change the very makeup of our DNA um, in such a way that it can be passed to the descendants, whether or not those descendants have ever known um, the actual people who withstood those events. And it's very interesting, you know, like if you look um, among Jews in general, there there does seem to be this like predisposition to anxiety, you know, and where does that come from? Like, does, does that come from? We are not we, alone. Yeah. Is it like we teach it to each other? Like, you know, something bad could happen at any moment. Maybe it's that, but it, it also may be something that, that really is encoded in us. I just think it's so interesting that trauma actually has the ability to then impact our evolution if it's changing our DNA. I know. It's uh, it's kind of a remarkable finding. I, I mean, I should say this: um, these studies are still pretty young, and they're somewhat controversial, but there's enough of them that are starting to accumulate now that I, I would say the field is less controversial than it was when it first emerged. Um, but yeah, there is a woman named Rachel Yehuda at Columbia who, who pioneered this work and continues to do more and more of it. Um, And it's really fascinating. You write about Rachel specifically in your book, and I ended up going Mm -hmm. into a rabbit hole of her research as well, which is just incredibly fascinating in, in terms of understanding how important it is to get help after trauma and how trauma not only then impacts you, but really whoever you're around and whoever you're with and potentially whoever you bring into the world. Yeah, no, there's something very, uh, there's something very empowering about knowing that. Um, and I actually discovered this, well, I mean, I guess I, 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 I always knew about this aspect of my life, but I did have a moment when I was researching the book, I went to this conference for bereavement counselors I'm not a bereavement counselor myself. I was just there as part of my book research. But the workshop was led by this incredible guy named Dr. Simcha Raphael. And he led us through an exercise where at at first we just had to tell the group about a loss that we had gone through in our lives. Um, And I talked about a particular loss and I found myself, I found myself like in floods of tears which I hadn't expected. Like, you know, as we began the exercise, I was feeling actually quite kind of detached and matter of fact. And so it really took me by surprise that as I started to talk, these tears came and the tears were not unfamiliar to me. It was like I had known them before. I had experienced these tears before. And it was actually Simcha who said to me that there was something about the nature of the tears that they seemed to be like, not only my own tears, they seem to be other people's tears too. They seem to be wow. like tears of, of 
parents or ancestors that I was carrying with me. And that was a, you know, on the one hand, maybe a kind of woo-woo thing to say, but on the other hand, there was something about it that really resonated. Um, And I was reminded of how, like all my life from the time I was very young, like when I was in sleepaway camp, for example, um, and I... And I had kind of liked camp and kind of really didn't. I was pretty ambivalent about it. And yet on the last day of camp, when I was a little kid, I was like in floods of tears about leaving camp. Like there was always something about endings and goodbyes that I took much harder than the situation seemed to warrant. And it felt like there was some ancient grief that yeah. I was locking into. That whole experience got me down this pathway of investigating this idea of inherited grief. I know you went to Princeton University. You graduated Mm -hmm. with a degree in English. I also graduated with a degree in English, but from SUNY Albany. And you graduated after completing a 91-page long senior thesis titled A Study of T.S. Eliot and Wyndham Lewis. And I'm wondering why you chose those writers and artists. Oh, my. First of all, can I just exclaim over the level of research you do for your podcasts? Like... (laughs) It's amazing. that I, I haven't thought about that senior thesis in like 30 years, and certainly no one has asked me about it. Really? Uh, yeah. Oh, my yeah. God. I love T.S. Eliot. I was so excited to ask you about it. Wow. Okay. So I wrote that. I, I, I'm pretty sure, as I say, I haven't thought about it in decades, but I'm pretty sure the subtitle of that thesis was A Study of Anti-Democratic Literature Between the World Wars. So it's really actually a follow-on of everything we were just talking about. I think because I emerged from this family where so much of our destiny was shaped by those wars, I, I was I was just always really fascinated by what could have possibly caused all of that to happen. So yeah, so I was really interested in in the literature of that period, you know, during that lull between the wars when there was even that time during the 20s where it seemed like everything was happy and good and then turned very dark. Um, So I've always been trying to figure that out. Oh, that's so interesting because in terms of that happy and dark, you also talked about effortless perfection Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and how everybody at Princeton appeared extremely shiny and in control and seemed they were ever there was, they were supposed to be in life and, as if they had already arrived, sort of fully yeah. formed. And yeah. you describe this as effortless perfection. And I'm wondering if that was going on at Princeton then, it seems that the entirety of social media is experiencing that now. There's the pressure that people seem to have to be effortlessly adept at, at, at is extraordinary. And it's a complete mismatch to what we truly feel and experience, mm-hmm. you know, we, but we can't reveal that. How are you seeing what you were experiencing at Princeton then to what's happening in the sort of larger context of, of what's happening, I guess, mostly online now? Well, I mean, that term of effortless perfection didn't actually exist back when I was at Princeton. I just was, was living it, I think. Um, and what happened is I went back 30 years later with a writer's notebook, which is the most amazing gift because it allows you to just enter into conversations with total strangers really and talk about the real stuff. Um, And so I just started asking these students what their lives were really like. And they were the ones who told me about this term effortless perfection, which is apparently a term at Princeton, but on at many other college campuses because this generation has felt the need to invent this term to describe what it is they're experiencing. You know, and it basically means this pressure to be perfectly thin, perfectly beautiful, perfectly athletic, perfectly academic, um, perfectly ambitious, perfectly social, uh, you know, and to do it all and to appear to be doing all of that effortlessly. I, I do think social media has enhanced all of these pressures, but they're, they're, in certain ways, not so different from what I had experienced all those years ago. I think this has been something that's been deep in our culture for a long time. Social media, just because it's so performative by its nature, just enhances, but it enhances what had already been there. I want to share a really, really bittersweet story with you about something that I did. I think I was in ninth grade. 
I just remembered this for the first time. (laughs) I had a crush on a boy named Robert. And Robert had a crush on a girl named Lorraine. (laughs) And I wanted Robert to think that I was perfect. Mm. I got a T-shirt, my favorite T-shirt, and I got those press-on letters. Oh, yeah, those iron-ons. Yeah, those iron-on letters. And I measured really carefully, and I ironed on the word perfect. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. On a T-shirt. And went to school with it on, and people were looking at me rather bizarrely. I remember that, like, whoa. But what I didn't realize as I measured to make sure it was perfectly placed was that the P and the T ended up under my arms and got all (laughs) crinkled by my perspiration over the course of the day. And so all you saw was Urfec with the P and the T sort of bunched up under in my armpits, essentially. And and I just remember that. I'm like, oh, my God, this attempt to seem perfect <laughs> showed how imperfect I really, really was. I can't get but- over that story. It's like if you had invented that story for a children's book, it would feel like too neat to be true. It's, but I do think you should write that one up. I probably will now that it's come flooded back to me. Oh, my God. In any case, um, you from Princeton, you went to Harvard. And you went to Harvard Law. You have your, your JD. Uh, you, are, you were a practicing lawyer for a long time. Was that effortless perfection, even though we didn't know the term at that point, do you think that that was sort of fueling your decision to pursue this sort of very respectable, very prestigious type of career? No, I actually really don't. There were two things that happened. One is that I took a bunch of classes at Princeton in creative writing, but they were all in fiction. And I didn't understand at the time, really, that there was a thing of like creative nonfiction. I just didn't know, even though I I realized in retrospect, there was a class there and that, but somehow that escaped me. So anyway, I was doing these fiction classes and it just really wasn't my thing. And so I thought, oh, well, all those youthful dreams that I always had about being a writer, you know, those were just like kid dreams. They weren't real. That's not what I'm going to do. And at the same time, my father pulled me aside and said, all those writer dreams that you've had, that's really great when you're young, but when you can't support yourself, when you're 30 and you can't pay the rent, it's not really so romantic then. So you should do something where you can support yourself. Um, And although I resisted that advice at the time he gave it to me, it also sunk in. And I did want to be able to be able to take care of myself. So it was just like this practical decision that I made. That's really what it was. But then I got to law school and because like most of the people who are at law school or people who had majored in, you know, politics or government or whatever, because I was so not meant for that place in the first place, I actually liked it more than most people did. Like most people really gritted their teeth through through it. I found it fascinating because it just felt to me like, I don't know, you know, it was like being in another country, I've I've said before. And I I just found it all fascinating. So for a while, I, I quite enjoyed the whole thing. Were you still keeping your diaries at that point? I know that you had started writing diaries from a very, very early age. It was part of what created a bit of a rift between you and your mom. Yeah, I kept these very intense diaries all the way through high school and college. And I kept them in this red backpack with a little combination lock on them. Um, and I would carry that backpack with me from dorm room to dorm room to apartment building to wherever I was living. And I do remember being in law school and carrying that backpack with me, like on my summer job things. But at some point, <laughs> at some point, I lost the backpack. Strange, like it's floating around somewhere in the world. Somewhere in the world. I, I really, you know, I've read about this. And when I was reading about it, I, I literally gasped. You know, it's one thing to have a parent read your your diaries as as your mom did when when you were younger, but quite another to know that it's somewhere out in the world. I know. And I feel like every time you talk about it, I'm hoping that somewhere, somehow, <laughs> someone will hear this and see a red backpack at a flea market and buy it and send it back to you. <laughs> that is my hope. That would be so awesome. I have to say my uh, my best friend from college heard me um, 
we were talking about some college stuff and she really wants me to write a memoir um, from those years. And I'm like, I can't do it unless I find the diaries because I don't think I remember enough for a whole memoir, but I, but I have, you know, books and books in there somewhere floating around the world. But it is a curious thing. You know, I lost those diaries twice because in one of those summer dorm room things, I left the diaries behind and then got a phone call from the person who, from whom I had been subletting. And she said, you, you, you've left this backpack full of diaries. And so I came and got them. And then I lost them again, like a year later. So I don't know. I am an extremely forgetful person by nature. I just am. I don't know if it's that or if it's some subconscious thing of having wanted to lose them. Who can say? After you graduated from Harvard, you went to work at a firm called Cleary, Gottlieb, Stein, and Hamilton. Steen and Hamilton, yeah. Steen and Hamilton, Steen and Hamilton, which is described as an international white shoe law firm. (laughs) (laughs) Has over 1,200 lawyers worldwide. You've since said that you were not a very natural lawyer in a million different ways, but you were on the partner track and very committed to that track. How did you envision your life at that point? Well, I mean, this was before I had kids, which made it easier. I really loved it at the beginning. The firm I was at, Cleary, all the firms have a slightly different personality to them. And and Cleary had a kind of intellectual vibe and an international vibe. And I, I just liked it. I enjoyed it. I really liked my colleagues. I thought it was kind of interesting. I couldn't quite believe that I was able to manage in this world of high finance which was so foreign to me. Like I didn't grow up in that kind of family. I didn't know the difference between a stock and a bond when I first started practicing. Like it was all so bizarre to me really. Um, So I got a huge kick out of it at the beginning. But then, you know, it's actually a very interesting lesson. It's like when you're absorbed into a world, because this is a 24 seven type of existence, So when you're absorbed into a social world 24-7, it really does become a kind of hermetically sealed container. And it's very hard to imagine what your life could be like outside of that. Even though as the years went on, I was starting to feel like completely overworked and like this wasn't really the right fit for me. I still was within that container, you know, Um, and envisioning a life of of being a partner with these colleagues who I really liked. And I had a dream. I wrote about this in the book. I had this dream of being able to move into a a, a red brick townhouse in West Village, in, in Greenwich Village in Manhattan, which is this lovely neighborhood. neighborhood in the world. It is the best neighborhood <laughs> in the world. It really is. And I did end up moving there. I just like, couldn't afford the townhouse, but I did end up getting an apartment there after leaving the law. When one of your senior partners let you know that you were not going to make partner, you burst into tears and immediately took a leave of absence from the firm. One thing I wasn't clear about, did you know if he meant you weren't going to make partner at that specific time or that you were never going to make partner? I had no idea. I wasn't clear either. I'm still not clear to this day, but... I do know that, you know, I I had simultaneously the sense of like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. And this is the best thing that's ever happened. You know, and while I was crying, I was in the mood of this is the worst thing that's ever happened. But like I left two hours later, I was bicycle riding around Central Park, just like in a loop around the park going nowhere. But just the fact that it could be two o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon or whatever day it was. And I was free to just like wander around the city like that was the most amazing thing. Yeah. And then literally that very night I started writing again. And it was the first time I had done that in so many years. Yeah. I read that one week later you signed up for a creative nonfiction class at NYU. And at that moment, you said you had a complete feeling of certainty that this was what you were going to be doing and had zero expectation that you would make a living out of it. Yeah. Um, But you were then committed. Like that was when you just decided to except that this was what you wanted to do. Yeah. It wasn't even accepting it. It was just like, it was like, there was no choice. It was so clear. It was like, this is it. This is what I've always wanted. This is what I, and and especially because now I had found this genre of nonfiction, like, because as I said, you know, when I had been in college, I had been experimenting with fiction and that didn't work, but it was like, now I'd found nonfiction. I realized, oh, this was the thing I needed all along. 
It wasn't only that I didn't expect to make a living at it. I told myself that the goal was to try to publish something by the time I was 75, because I didn't know what was involved in getting published. I didn't know if such a thing could be possible. You know, I had just grown up with this idea of, of to publish a book was just like, it was like scaling Mount Olympus. So do you know if you'll actually be able to scale Mount Olympus before you're 75? No, you do not. (laughs) So that's how it was to me. But I knew that I wanted to like center my life around that. Shortly after you left your job, you also ended a seven-year relationship that you also had felt always was sort of wrong. Mm-hmm. So as you've put it, you would, so there you were in your early 30s. You had no career, no love, no place to live. And your next move, I love this because I so relate, <laughs> your next move was to immediately fall into a relationship with a handsome musician who, despite you stating was the wrong guy for a variety of reasons, your feelings for him developed into a crazy obsession, the likes of which you have never experienced before or since. No matter what you did, you couldn't seem to escape it. Been there, done that, know it. (laughs) (laughs) So glad that's behind me. Um, Do you have a sense of why this happened at the time? Oh, yeah, very much so. I mean, I had basically spent the prior 10 years in the wrong relationship and in the wrong career. And now I was suddenly in this state that I called free fall. But it wasn't an accident that this was the particular person who I fell in love with. Um, Because what what actually happened is I had this very (laughs) indulgent friend, Naomi, who would listen to me tell stories about this guy on endless repeat. And Naomi one day said to me, you know, if you're this obsessed with him, it's because he represents something. He represents something that you're longing for. And so what is it that you're longing for? The minute she said it, the moment she said it, it was so clear to me that he represented this beautiful world of art and literature that I had wanted to be part of from the very beginning and had had not thought I could belong to somehow or, you know, not not allowed myself access to or something like that. And as, as soon as I understood that, the obsession with him completely melted away and I was just able to focus on the writing itself, which was the thing. I mean, he was, he was a lovely person. He had all kinds of qualities to justify loving him, but the, the obsession part, that was all gone. Whenever you're feeling um, an emotion that's beyond all reason, there's a reason. Yeah. Susan, that's my favorite line in the book. You are this hooked because he represents something you're longing for. Mm-hmm. And how often do we sort of transfer and project these longings on someone as opposed to something that we should be doing or want to be feeling or need to be feeling that we just can't seem to get ourselves to feel. And it's really the moment I was so looking forward to talking to you about because I know I've been through it. I know so many people have been through these experiences where this sort of obsession takes over our psyche. And and we don't really know why, because we know it's not the person. And it's happened. I've had that experience with siblings. I've had this experience with significant others, where the anger, the sadness, or the sorrow somehow seems so much bigger than it is, because it's really not about that at all. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I know. And when you're in the throes of it, it's very hard to see that. Uh, It's actually, I think, probably less common to have a kind of epiphany moment the way I did that all she had to do is ask that one question. And I was like, Oh, okay. The, you know, the skies have parted and now I see more often we probably come to it more gradually or in retrospect. Well, I think that's something that's actually going to help people in reading bittersweet because I had an experience recently where I was just weeping over something that had happened with my brother And because I had read that and I was literally like all day long weeping, weeping on the street, weeping in the house, weeping in the studio. And all of a sudden, because I had just read that, I thought, this isn't about that at all. Mm. This is something much, much deeper. And then I was able to really look at it in a way that I hadn't before. So I, and I I will talk about, well, I want to talk about longing and bittersweet in a moment, but I, I just feel like it's really important to at least acknowledge what happened right before bittersweet or in the years before bittersweet, which is when that obsession fell away and you started writing for real, 
which really ultimately led you to writing Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking, Mm -hmm. which is an idea you had in the beginning of the 2000s and then ultimately published in, in 2012. At the time you were writing Quiet, you you thought that you were working on a highly idiosyncratic project and you'd be lucky to get a book deal and sell a few copies, but that's not what happened at all. Your agent approached several publishers. There was an auction, a bidding war. Penguin Random House emerged the winner. It took you seven years to write mm-hmm. Quiet. I want to make sure I have this right. Is it true that your editor read the first draft, told you it was terrible, rejected it outright, and then told you to start over from scratch? Yeah, it is true. I mean, she said it more nicely than maybe that summary makes it sound like. Okay. I, I, like she was, she was nice about it. Um, but she and, still said the word, like, no. <laughs> yeah, she she said, I remember, I remember going to her office and sitting at her desk and she said, yeah, I, I want you to start over, just start, start over, start from scratch. And we're going to give you all the time that you need to do this. Wow. That's incredible. I have to tell you that I, I told my, my editor that I needed more time and she was like, no. <laughs> I know. Well, it's funny that you say that because I was like, I was actually so elated when she did that because I knew I needed so much more time. I totally knew it. I had never published a word in my life. I had no idea how to write a book. And I knew I couldn't do it in in the short amount of time that publishing contracts usually give you. So I was just thrilled that I had all that free reign. Well, it was worth it. Worth the wait. Quiet was finally released in 2012. It became a pretty instant success. It's now sold over 4 million copies worldwide. It's been translated into more than 40 languages. It spent more than seven years on the New York Times bestseller list. Your TED Talk on the power of introverts has been viewed over 40 million times. And as importantly as all of those markers of success, I think that it's really clear in in our culture today that quite inspired a cultural reconsideration about what it means to be an introvert. Did you have any sense or intuition at all that that groundswell was going to occur and that way in which we think about quieter people was going to be so profound and meaningful to so many people? I guess the glimmerings of it started to happen from the time that I first sold the book and there was that bidding war that that you talked about, you know, and at that bidding war, like that consisted of me going around to meet with all the different publishers who were bidding. So I was basically going from one meeting to the next each one filled with people saying, oh, this book is about me. I've never said, I've never said this out loud before, but this is about me. Like, and I start, so I started to hear things like that over and over and over again. So, you know, you start to kind of get a glimmer, but I think you never believe something like that until it actually happens. Also, if I showed you, it wasn't only that one time when, when my editor pulled me in and said, start from scratch, but there was another editor who was involved and he wrote me like a two page single space letter talking about all the different things that I needed to do and conceptualize like in order to have the book fulfill its promise. <laughs> like if you were the person reading that letter, not knowing the future, you would have no way of knowing that you would actually be able to pull it off. Yeah. Cause it sort of seems like these big successful books just come out fully formed and they don't. Yeah. Yeah. Or even the question of which topic, you know, like before I was working on quiet, I worked on so many other different writing projects and it wasn't clear that this was the one I was going to focus on, but somehow I just did. Well, that's interesting. You've said that you feel like the only point of writing is telling the truth of what it's like to be alive Yeah, and telling those truths that people don't really talk about in everyday life. Yeah, I do feel that way. Bittersweet, your most recent book, um, the title of which is really Bittersweet, How Longing and Sorrow Make Us Whole, has just been released. It debuted number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Congratulations. That is absolutely magical and incredible. 
You start Bittersweet by recounting how when you were 22 years old and still in law school, a group of friends visited your dorm room to pick you up on their way to class, and you've been listening to what you described as bittersweet music, Hmm. which is something you'd been doing all your life. And your friends asked why you were listening to funeral tunes. (laughs) And you laughed, and you all went off to class, and then you thought about your friend's comment for the next 25 years. (laughs) Yeah, I did. Um, Why? Why did I keep thinking about it yeah, that way? Yeah. I kept thinking about it because I have always felt this deep intuition that there's something in that music and in the in the bittersweet sensations that it, it is straining to evoke. There's something in that music that is connected to transcendence and spiritual longing. Mm. And I say this as a deeply agnostic person. I've never been, you know, like a believer in conventional terms. And yet, I guess when I hear music like that, I'm experiencing, I think, what other people mean when they talk about God. Mm. That's how profound it is to me. And I now know not just to me, to many, many other people. But then as I continued this whole exploration, I realized it wasn't really just about music itself. It's more like about just this deep state of mind in which you are connected to the fact that joy and sorrow are forever paired and you're connected to the sense of a a longing for the world to be more perfect and more beautiful than it is and that there's something in that longing that is actually what carries you closer to that which we long for. I, I, I don't really know any state of mind more profound than that one. Yeah. There's something really powerful in the word longing because there's a sense of it being both something you're striving for and reaching toward, but also don't have yet. And so there's that sense of both having and not having or sorrow and 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 potential mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. I, I actually learned from reading bittersweet that people play happy songs on their playlists about 175 times on average but they play sad songs 800 times yeah yeah, yeah. i thought that that was one of the most profound bits of data in the book I know. about the human experience i know it's so fascinating and like There's this YouTube video, I talked about it in the book, with this um, two-year-old boy who's attending his sister's piano recital. Offstage, you can hear there's someone at the recital plunking out Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. And you see the boy sitting on his father's lap listening to Moonlight Sonata for the first time, which is, you know, just like the quintessential, beautiful, melancholic music. And the boy has these tears streaming down his face. But they're not like tears of like, wow, I lost, uh, you know, I my truck broke. It's not like that. It's like just these profound tears. And, and this video went viral with everybody trying to figure out what that was. And somebody said in one of the comments, someone said something like he is experiencing the the mix of joy and sorrow that is one of the greatest states that humans can experience. That's transcendence. That is transcendence. I mean, I've always suspected that certain kinds of music somehow impact me on a sort of molecular level. Yes. And and I don't know if it's sort of social conditioning or if it's the key or if it's neurological or all of those things, but there definitely there's definitely comfort in music, I think more than any other art form. I agree. I I do believe that music is the highest of all the art forms because it just goes straight to the heart of the thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You write about how Aristotle wondered why the great poets and philosophers and artists and musicians often had melancholic personalities. And that's a word that shows up quite a lot in Bittersweet. And I'm wondering if you could define what having a melancholic personality means. It's a kind of tendency to states of poignancy and sorrow and longing. It's an intense awareness of the way in which joy and sorrow are forever paired. It's an intense awareness of the way in which everyone and everything we love most will not be here forever. And it's with all of that, an intense vibration with like the incredible beauty of the world. There's there's something about the apprehension of the impermanence and of the universality or inevitability of sorrow 
There's something that comes with that that's intensely connected to beauty and creativity and to communion, like this deep communion of the fact that all souls have to pass this way, that none of us are going to get to the Garden of Eden. We are each of us going to occasionally glimpse it, and those glimpses are going to be some of the most magical things ever to happen to us, but we're never actually going to arrive home. We're never going to arrive there. And there's something about the fact of us all being together in that state of exile that is the deepest bonding agent we have. This is why I, I find it so mystifying to live in a culture that's so insistent only on smiles, only on upbeat, only on op- right. optimism, because I feel like, oh my gosh, don't you see? Don't you see this incredible power that we have? Don't like, don't you see that all our art comes from this wellspring of the fact that the Garden of Eden is over there and not here? Um, and don't you see this is what bonds us together? Yes. And, and that's the whole sort of bewilderment I have around this notion of effortless perfection, because I think people are much more interested in sort of the rigor and the process and the messiness and how, I mean, part of what I feel so compelled to do in my own interviews is talk about the struggle, talk about the obstacles, talk about how you overcame those things. I'm not really as interested in, in, I mean, if that ends up resulting in success, that's amazing. And people then can see a potential path that they might be able to learn from. But, you know, I'm just not interested in the shiny, happy stuff. Yeah, no, I know. And it's, I, I like, I do hasten to say it's not, I'm sure you feel this way. I'm sure you love being happy and I'm sure you prefer being happy to being sad. I, I know I do. I think probably yeah. every human does. Um, so it's not that there's something wrong with happiness. It's just a big pretense. Right. It's projection of how you want people to see you. And and that's the part that's so concerning because, yeah. you know, Generation Z is is now, I've been reading how they're being called Generation D, D for depression, because oh, wow. of this comparative survival of the most effortlessly perfect. Right, um, right, right. In, because of the comparisons and they take down pictures if they don't get enough likes or if they don't get enough feedback. And that breaks my heart. Yeah, no, I feel it must be so incredibly difficult to be growing up in that kind of an environment. I think what people really want, I think people want to feel inspired and connected by stories of the world as it actually is, as opposed to the world, the way we're pretending it to be. So that's just what I want to kind of like open up more space for us to talk about. Yeah, I know that when you were writing Quiet, I read that you were worried that people would think you were really talking about sort of being a misanthrope and equating yeah. introversion with not liking people. And that was not your intention or your message. And now with Bittersweet, you've written that you think there's a danger of people thinking it's a book advocating for a depressive state. And yeah. that's yeah. absolutely not what you're talking about at all. And it seems like psychologically, our culture doesn't distinguish between melancholy or even sorrow and mm-hmm. depression, although they're completely different and distinct states. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit, because I know that that's a really important part of the book. It is really important. And um, and it's not just our culture, it's the whole field of psychology. I mean, one of the first things I did was um, I, I started typing the word melancholy into PubMed, you know, which is the, the, the database where you define clinical articles. And um, there is no distinction made. You know, you type in melancholy, melancholy and what you get is a bunch of articles about depression. You know, and I started asking around with esteemed psychologists and and they were like, yeah, there is a difference. Here's what the difference is. But like, you can't find it kind of like written down anywhere in the field. Only now there is beginning to emerge kind of a, a 2.0 in the field of positive psychology that's saying positive psychology shouldn't be only about looking at states of, you know, utmost cheer and optimism. It should be about like a deeper understanding of what human flourishing actually is and that humans flourish by existing with these two poles of light and dark and, and joy and sorrow, that is, that's what humanity must do. That's what it always has done. I feel like we're at the glimmers of starting to get there. But yes, it's the same, the same fear of, of being misunderstood that I had with quiet in that way. I gave a TED Talk about bittersweetness in 2019. So it was the summer before the pandemic. So people were not 
of a mind at that point to be thinking about these kinds of things. And mm. I came off the stage and some people I knew in the audience were like, oh, I never knew you were a depressive. And I was like, Ugh. no, 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 that's not what I was saying. And I, you know, and I probably am like somewhere on that spectrum or something, but I, I think these are differences of degree and that the differences of degree are so meaningful as, as to effectively be differences of kind. By which Absolutely. I mean, yeah, like if you're in a state of depression, as I understand it, you know, it's like an emotional black hole and you feel numb and you feel despair and worthless and hopeless and all these things. Whereas the state of bittersweetness, you're not feeling any of that. You're feeling a, a, a sorrow for the trials that humanity has to face and the evils that come into it and all of that. But you're also feeling like this incredible love and amazement at how beautiful everything also is. And it's like the more you feel one, the more you're you're then feeling the other. They they go together. Absolutely. I've experienced three episodes of depression in my life. And I can tell you that there's a very, very different emotional experience between depression and sadness. Mm -hmm. And I try not to say things like, I'm feeling depressed because I know what feeling depressed is. So I don't want to say yeah, that I'm feeling yeah. depressed the way I think people just say I'm feeling depressed because I know what real depression feels like. I try to sort of position it or describe it as I feel blue. Mm -hmm. And that feels more accurate. Like I'm not in a depressive hole where I can't get out of bed, where I can't think about the future with any hope. I'm just catatonic and and very, very sad. Blue is more melancholic. And I think, you know, I think that's why Joni Mitchell called the album Blue, aside from right. the song. You know, that's mm -hmm. like sort of the perfect, and I know you have the same feeling about Leonard Cohen's music, I think I have about Joni Mitchell's. It's mm -hmm. the most sort of beautiful, sad, joyful, sorrowful, light and dark music on the planet. Yes. And and that's how you just sort of define bittersweetness in the book. It's a state in which you can truly inhabit the idea that life is always simultaneously joy and sorrow, light and dark. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering where longing comes in in that, because the longing part is still that part that I'm so invested in, in bittersweet. Me too. It's probably the heart of it all to me. I believe that this sense of longing that we have, the sense of existential longing for that which is most perfect, beautiful, true, um, you know, love, like the, the pure essence of love, that longing is, it's the core part of the human soul. Yeah. And we don't have a language for talking about that, I think, because we have understood this longing only within the realm of religion. Religion is probably the best medium that we found for giving expression to this longing. You know, so we long for Eden, we long for Mecca, we long for Zion. Love. Yeah. I mean, the way the Sufis put it, they, they call it the longing for the beloved of the soul. I love that. Like to me, that, that says it all. But because we have religion over here and we have secular life over there, we don't have as much of a way of talking about this kind of existential longing in everyday life. And yet, our art expresses it for us, you know, and that's why you have Dorothy longing for somewhere over the rainbow. Mm, um, yes. Home sweet home. Yeah. Home sweet home. We're longing for home. As the religious have always said, you know, I'm a poor wayfaring stranger. I want to go home. Harry Potter, like all, all these different protagonists of children's fiction, they enter the story at the moment that they become orphans. It's not an accident. It's not an accident. He enters the story at the moment he is, now going to spend the rest of his life longing for these parents who he'll never remember. There's something about that, that that is who we are at our very essence. And it's the best part of our nature because the fact that we're so beset by this longing, first of all, it has a sweetness to it. But second, the more we lean into that longing, the closer paradoxically we get to the thing we're longing for. Yeah. Um, and that's what the, the mystical traditions all teach. They all teach the same thing. You know, like they tell you, be thirsty, be thirsty, because the idea is the thirstier you are, the closer you get to its quench. 
you write about how the ancient Greeks used the word pathos, mm-hmm. which and which is different than pathos. So it's P-O-T-H-O-S, yeah. which means longing for what is beautiful and unattainable. And reading Bittersweet, I learned that a young Alexander the Great described himself as seized by pathos as he sat on a riverbank and gazed into the distance, and that it was pathos that set Homer's Odyssey in motion with the shipwrecked Odysseus longing for home. And the poem literally starts with him homesick, weeping on a beach. Yeah and, yeah. and I wanted to share one of my favorite literary quotes about homesickness that I've been quoting for feels like my entire <laughs> adult life. Um, it's from a letter Robert Frost wrote to the poet Louis Untermeyer. And I don't know if you know this. It was in 1916, talking about what a poem actually is. And he states, a poem begins as a lump in the throat a sense of wrong, a homesickness, a lovesickness. It is a reaching out toward expression, an effort to find fulfillment. A complete poem is one where an emotion finds the thought and the thought finds the words. Oh my gosh. I know. Oh my gosh. That yes, total goosebumps. I can't believe you found that. It's like that. that Well, I've I've been quoting this for years and I don't know if you know this, but well, if you, if you haven't heard that, John F. Kennedy used that quote in the last speech he ever gave in October 1963 when he was visiting Amherst College. Ah, did not know that. Yes. Um, you write at length about a psychologist, uh, Dr. Dacher Keltner. Yes. Did I say it right? Dacher, Dacher Keltner. Keltner mm-hmm. Who has conducted really pioneering work on what he refers to as the compassionate instinct. And he also believes that when we think of human nature, we tend to think about survival of the fittest. Mm -hmm. But Dr. Keltner says we should also really be talking about survival of the kindest. Because as humans, the only way that we survive is by being able to respond to the cries of our infants. And what has radiated outward from there in your, in your writing, is that humans not only respond to our own infants' cries, mm-hmm. we react to the cries of other people's infants, and then we react to other human beings in distress in general. Did I, did I get that right? Yeah, you did. You did. Decker's work is really incredible, and it's, it's rooted in Darwin's work. And the thing to know about Darwin, you know, the, the layperson's view is like survival of the fittest. Mm. So I don't know what comes to mind when your typical person thinks of Darwin, but I'm assuming they're thinking in very competitive terms like that. But Darwin was actually a very gentle, melancholic type of person. Um, like he adored his wife. He adored his, I think he had 10 children. He, oh my uh, God. Yeah. And, and, he, and he loved them. And most of all, he loved his daughter, Annie, who he was really, both parents were incredibly close with. And then Annie died of scarlet fever when she was 10 and and he and his wife were absolutely heartbroken. He was like, he was a very sensitive soul. His father had wanted him to be a doctor, but he couldn't stand the sight of blood. I guess in those days, people had surgery without anesthesia. So the whole thing horrified him. He was way too sensitive for that. And he went and he studied his beetles and his birds and stuff. It was really Darwin who had first noticed this compassionate instinct. Like he, he noticed in animals that there was this impulse to react to the suffering of other animals. And he noted that it happened so instantaneously and in such a pre-conscious way that he felt it had to be like an incredibly deep-seated instinct. You know, and then enter Dacher Keltner 150 years later, and he's making all these discoveries. Like we have the vagus nerve, which is the biggest bundle of nerves in our bodies. It's so fundamental to who we are that it regulates our our breathing, our digestion, and also our vagus nerve, if we see another being in distress, becomes activated. It's at the the same level. It's as basic to us as our our need to breathe and our need to digest food is our pre-conscious response to other beings suffering. So it's not like it's just a Sunday school teaching that's imposed on us from up on high. It's like, this is who we are. And who we are is also competitive and sometimes cruel. Like these these two things sit side by side in human nature. But this compassionate aspect, it is real. And its foundation, you could say, is sadness in a way. You know, it's like part of the reason 
parents bond with infants is because we are designed to respond to those infants' cries. So this is But like we have a, to recognize it as something that sort of needs to be attended to. What's exactly. so interesting to me is that all of those other things, digestion, um, breathing, those are all involuntary. We yes. can't control those things. Exactly. And so this comes from the same place where yeah. we can't control this this need to to take care of of another being that is close to us in pain or sorrow. Yeah, exactly. That's why I say it's not like a Sunday school teaching, like, now I will remember to be kind to somebody. It's like, you don't have a choice. You don't, this is what Darwin noticed, you don't feel good when you see someone else who's in trouble. You yourself then feel like you're in trouble. It's vicarious and it's pre-conscious. So... This is why I think there's that same impulse that we find, you know, in the sad music and everything else. This is why those stimuli trigger in us feelings of love, because this is part of how our love, our love mechanics work. Another major learning for me in reading Bittersweet was the idea that showing sorrow is more powerful than actually showing anger. And I've realized over time that basically, almost without fault, every feeling of anger that I have has an underlying foundation of sadness. Mm -hmm, that really mm -hmm. it's about sadness first, and I can either choose to express that through sorrow or through anger, and anger tends to be easier. And I think that's why so many people don't even recognize their own sorrow, because they're really yeah. operating first out of anger. I think that's right. And and the sorrow gets socialized out of us. Um, and that, that's especially true in the workplace. Um, yes. There's one study I talked about in the book where they, they interviewed people about different things that had happened to them at their work. And people would describe situations that were just clearly sad and painful, but they would never use words like that to describe them. They would only use words like frustrated and angry because those are the only words people feel like they have permission to say. Isn't that interesting? We can't bring our full selves to that mm -hmm. workplace. Um, before I let you go, I want to talk. I want to go back to something we discussed earlier and the distinction between depression and and longing. And you write about Columbia University psychiatry professor Philip Muskin in Bittersweet, who stated, "Creative people are not creative when they're depressed." Mm -hmm. And you suggest that it may be more useful to view creativity through the lens of bittersweetness of grappling simultaneously with darkness and light and go on to state that it's not pain that equals art. It's that creativity has the power to look pain in the eye and to decide to turn it into something better. And I'm wondering if, because this is, is really a show so much about the origins of creativity, mm -hmm. do you think that this is something that people can do consciously? Yes, I do. I do. I mean, for some people, I think it happens automatically. But yeah, I think absolutely there's a choice we can make when we find ourselves at those moments of pain or processing past ones um, where, you know, you can kind of leave it unattended and it's going to have its way of taking itself out on you or on the people mm. around you. Or you can make the conscious choice to turn it into something else. I'm always mindful about saying that because I feel like like the last thing someone in pain needs is like now another thing on my to-do list. Like not only am I having pain, but now I have to <laughs> turn around yeah. and turn it into something different. But there is something incredibly liberating about trying to do that and about just understanding during those moments that there is a special experience you're having at that moment that you probably mm -hmm. won't be having again. I mean, I remember it, well, like, um, I lost my father and my brother to COVID. I know. And, um, I'm so sorry. Oh, thank you. And I, I do remember during, like, the especially raw moments you feel in the immediate shock and aftermath um, after a loved one dies. I mean, from a writer's point of view, there is a kind of intensity during those moments. I didn't always feel like writing, but I, I remember feeling like if I don't capture this now it will be gone because there's something really intense happening at this very moment. I happen to be a writer, but there's a thousand different ways of expressing and transforming pain into something else. Well, it also doesn't have to happen at the same time. That's true. You know, That's a really good are, point. There are, there are moments where 
I'm feeling really sad and feeling sorry for myself. And people often ask me what I do when that happens. And I say, I just wallow. I mean, I'm old (laughs) enough now to know that it's just, I can't just push it away. Let me feel it. Let me metabolize it. I know it eventually will pass or change. And so just experience it when you're feeling it. And then maybe feel like you're connected to other people that might be feeling that too in a way that you couldn't feel otherwise. Yeah, And and, and then- when you are feeling better, you can try to transform it into something else that includes understanding the world in a different way, maybe. Yeah. And that it doesn't have to be like a a painting that's going to hang on a gallery wall or something. It could be baking a cake or it could be, as you said, understanding the world differently. I'm always struck that in the wake of 9-11, suddenly there were all these people signing up to become firefighters and teachers. And then in the week of the pandemic, we have people signing up for medical school and nursing school. So I think there's something in the human spirit that looks at pain and tries to turn it into something of meaning. It's just what Mm -hmm. we do naturally. You might say that the opposite things should be happening, right? Like a lot of firemen die in a burning building. So now there's more people signing up to be firefighters. That doesn't make Mm -hmm. sense, you might say. Or people are dying in a pandemic. Why would everyone be signing up to become doctors and nurses now? But there's something in the human spirit that does that. That calls us to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Speaking of baking a cake, I have one last question for you. (laughs) Yeah. I read that a few times a year, you try to like cooking. Yes. (laughs) And I was wondering how that was going for you. Oh my gosh. I I, I I think I have one of those times coming on, actually. <laughs> I haven't had one for a while. But yeah, I'm not a natural cook and I always wish that I were. Um, I always admire people who are domestic geniuses who, you know, like whip things up and it's all, as we said, effortless for them. It is not for me, but I love the idea of it. <laughs> me too. And I'm eternally grateful now that my wife likes to do it way more than I do or can. (laughs) Oh, you are so lucky. That is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Susan, for me, the idea at the heart of Bittersweet is how people can transform pain into creativity, transcendence, and love. It is an exquisitely beautiful book. And I just want you to, I want to thank you for sharing it with the world and for joining me today on Design Matters. Well, thank you so much, Debbie, for having me and for the work that you do. And it was such a treat to get to know you. I feel like we have to get together in person after this. Absolutely. (laughs) So many of the things I want to tell you (laughs) and share with you. Susan Cain's remarkable new book is titled Bittersweet, How Longing and Sorrow Make Us Whole. You can find out more about Susan Cain and read lots more about her work at susancain.net. This is the 18th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyland.